So we have this first reading today from the book of Job, and it's from chapter 38, and it's just kind of ripped out of there, and we don't have any context at all for what's going on. So let's talk about what's been going on in the book of Job for the first 38 chapters. Job receives terrible, terrible afflictions. Like he loses his children, all of his possessions, and he's got like these nasty boils, and it's just pretty horrible. Like he's got this terrible, terrible affliction that's been thrust upon him, really. And so his friends show up, and they tell him, you know, first they sit with him for a while, but then they start telling him why he's suffering these things. Obviously, it's because he's a terrible person, and he's done something to offend God. And so they go at him for 30 chapters. Like, wow, okay, we get the point. You think this is his fault. But Job denies that. He does not accept that answer for why these things have befell him. He doesn't accept that he's done anything wrong because he knows that he hasn't. He's done his best to follow God with everything within himself. That is what he does. He follows God. And so he denies that. And then Job demands an answer from God. He tells God in no uncertain terms, this speech only takes two chapters. God, why have you done this to me? Why am I suffering this? I demand an answer. And so then after that happens, there's a fourth friend of Job who decides he's going to talk. His name's Elihu, all right? And he's the youngest, and he's full of vim and vigor, and now he is furious because not only have these three older, wiser men not condemned Job, but they haven't found a good answer either. And so Elihu, well, he's going to get it, you know. So he just lays into Job and tells him, this is most certainly your fault. So after Elihu speaks, we get an answer from God. And God's response, well, it's a little bit of a rebuke to Job for demanding an answer, but it's not a condemnation. God answers, and we get the very first part of that answer in our reading today. He says, Job, where were you when I made the clouds, the garments of this earth, when I made this thick darkness that swaddles it? Where were you when I set the limits for all of the seas and said, you shall go no farther? If we keep going, he says, Job, you were there when the sun was born, weren't you? Tell me how that went. It's a little bit ironic, a little bit sarcastic, but it's not condemning Job. What God is trying to do is say, look at these wonders. Look at the gifts I have given you. And you need to focus on that, Job. And so God never gives him a reason why. Instead, he refocuses Job to look at the goodness and the glory of God. And that teaches us something, too. If we look around the world, there's a lot of people who want to condemn someone who has fallen. We've got a few priests in this country who seem to be making their living out of condemning people. And it just irks me because that's not how God works. Yes, he will rebuke you for your sins, but he's not going to sit there and condemn you. He's going to show you a better way. He's going to show you, look towards me, the source of all goodness, and focus on that in your life instead of these sins. That's how God speaks to us. 
He doesn't condemn until we can no longer change our mind. Because we do occasionally see those bits in the Bible. But look at who it is. It's the angels who have fallen, who can no longer change their mind because that's not how angels are made. They choose once and they choose forever. And so it's done when they've decided. That's why Satan will never be good and he cannot repent because he is unable to change his mind. He's made that decision once and for eternity. And for those people who have died, the reason they go to heaven or hell is because through their life they have shown whether they want to be with God for eternity or not. And once they die, they can't change their mind anymore. That's the end of our decision-making. That's the only time we ever see these things happen. Up until that moment, God doesn't condemn. He tries to lead us back to Him and show us the way back to Him. And so we ought to imitate that to show people the path of goodness and truth and beauty that leads us back to God. In fact, this is kind of what we see going on in the Gospel today. We see this crazy storm. And if you go to the Sea of Galilee, the tour guides there will tell you, crazy storms are kind of common on the Sea of Galilee. I guess there's some features of the geography that make it weird. But Jesus gets up and He rebukes the wind and says to the sea, quiet, be still. And that's showing something of the truth and the beauty of God because it's showing us His power. It's showing us that when God speaks a word, there's no fighting for it. There's no work that has to be done. When God speaks, it happens. And it also reminds us, by the way, Jesus is God because only God can command the wind and the seas. Christ is showing us His glory and His power. He's showing us that if we follow Him, He will bring us to His Father. He will bring us to heaven. The apostles don't know about that part yet, but we do. We luckily have had about 2,000 years to think about it, right? And so what is the response that Christ calls us to? after He shows us the way to the goodness, to the truth, to the beauty. The response Christ calls us to, He says, why are you terrified? Do you not yet have faith? We are called to faith. We are called to believe that Jesus Christ can do exactly what He says. He just showed them He can calm the storms by simply telling them to calm down, right? So if Christ says He can do something, if Christ says He can bring us to heaven, then we know that He's good for it. We know that He can do it. And that's what faith is. It's believing that Christ can do exactly what He says He's going to do. It's believing that what St. Paul says is true, that Christ has made us a new creation He's brought us to this new life. He's brought us into this new covenant and He's asked us to follow Him. Faith is believing that Jesus Christ can do that. And then we've got that great virtue of hope, which we take our faith and we see Christ can do that. Hope is what tells us that He will do that. Not just He's going to do that generally. He's going to do that for you and you and for me, and even for Luke, the seminarian, right? We have that hope that Christ is good for it. 
that He's going to do it for us. Otherwise, if we didn't have that hope, we'd be in a really sorry state. And to round out those three theological virtues, we have love. We see love, it's a response to being loved. We are loved first by God. God is the one who created us, and He has this desire for us. Yesterday, we had a wedding here, and they had the first reading. It was from the Song of Songs. And God is the one who is the lover in there. He is pursuing us. Like, He's the guy who sees a crack in the window and He tries to get a peek in there because He can't stand being away from us. That is the love God has for us. And when we recognize that, when we recognize that, it can stoke the fires of our heart and it can bring about this faith and this hope. All of these things that we need to follow Him. And so as we go through this week, let's focus on God. Let's look at His beauty. Let's ponder His wonder. Let's allow the love that God has for us to confirm our faith and to instill that hope in our hearts and to enkindle the fires of our own love. Let us listen to those words spoken by the One whose Word creates. He says, be still and know that I am God. And he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love.